First John chapter five, uh, John is closing the first letter that he wrote to the church. And um, he's summing some things up, summarizing some things. Beginning in verse 13, he said, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the son of God. So he's writing to the church, he's writing to Christians. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's talking about believing on the name of the Son of God twice, once to get saved, once to bring you into the family of God, and the next time that he makes mention of it, he's talking about the use of the name of Jesus. Verse 14, he says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if, the word if is literally the word since, and since we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now, the, uh, the church at large for, well, since the first couple of hundred years after Jesus was raised from the dead, the church has used, um, or at least a segment of the church, I think it's the majority segment, but uh, at least a part of the church, has used verses of Scripture like these um, to conclude or to surmise that the will of God is a difficult thing to understand. They'll uh, team scriptures like this with uh, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was facing the cross, and he said, Lord, if it, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And as such, uh, a lot of the church has for many, many hundreds of years had the idea that God is sovereign when it comes to what you receive from him. Now, the, as I understand it, the, the concept of the sovereignty of God is that whatever his will is here on the earth, it's just going to come to pass no matter what, because he's God, and he's all-powerful, and that's the way he works. And, uh, and that's just the bottom line. If, uh, if we pray and don't get an answer, then apparently it was not God's will, according to that line of reasoning. It wasn't God's will for us to have it, and so that's why we didn't get it. But there's a problem with that, and that is over and over again, the Bible talks about man having authority here on the earth. Now, when it says here, uh, when John says, I'm writing to you Christians to know that you have eternal life and that you can and should use the name of Jesus. That's basically what verse 13 is saying. What is he talking about having eternal life, knowing that we have eternal life? What does that mean in his as far as his intent is concerned, what's he trying to get us get across to us? What's he trying to get us to understand? Well, eternal life really comes down to uh, one root benefit, and everything else springs out from that, and that is righteousness. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, then he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. First uh, Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one. Uh, I'm sorry, it's, uh, Romans chapter five, verse twenty-one says that God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So when John's talking about that we know that we have eternal life, what does he mean if he's not talking about righteousness? He's got to be talking about righteousness, folks. He's got to be talking about that. He's got to be talking about, not, uh, granted, everything else springs from there. Righteousness is the beginning point. It's the foundation stone of our Christian life. It's uh, it's the, the result of making Jesus Lord and Savior of our lives, accepting his sacrifice for our, uh, our sins uh, individually. So righteousness is the foundation stone, is the beginning point. And notice that he uses that relationship with God talking about prayer. If, we, if we're correct, and I, you judge it for yourself, I, I, I think we could, if we took the time, we could certainly prove it without a shadow of a doubt or beyond a shadow of a doubt with other scriptures. But when John says, these things that are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, Christians, that you may know that you have eternal life, what does he mean if he's not talking about knowing that we have been made righteous? That's got to be it. And then notice the very next thing he says, to you righteous ones, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And since we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Notice something that, uh, that Peter said here. Beginning in verse 12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. 
but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Righteousness is right standing with God. Someone defined righteousness as the ability to stand in the presence of God without a sense of guilt or inferiority. I like that. I think that's right. But the words used, in righteous, used for righteousness in both the Hebrew and the Old Testament and the Greek and the New Testament both convey something a little bit different from that. And that is the words themselves mean rightness. It means things put back in order, proper order. Well, we know that God created man in his image and after his likeness, breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living soul, as the King James translation refers to it. He was of the nature of God. He was righteous. But then the fall took place, and spiritual death, which is the end result of unrighteousness, spiritual death began to rule and reign over mankind. God created man to have authority on the earth, Genesis 1.26 says. But not just for man to have authority on the earth. God's original plan was for righteous man to have authority on the earth. See, when we go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and it says, God said to Jesus and the Holy Ghost, apparently, that's all, they were the only ones that were around. God said, let us make man in our image and likeness. That's not just talking about appearance. That's talking about character and nature. Let's make man of ourselves, our life, our right standing, our rightness, our righteousness, and let them have dominion over the earth and over all the works of God's hands. God never intended for unrighteous man to exercise or wield authority on the earth. If that had been his plan, then he would have made some people righteous and other people unrighteous. That never was his plan. His plan was for the righteous ones that were descendants of Adam to rule and reign over the earth. Now his purpose and his plan is fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus. So we could say that God's plan, his original intent, his present day intent, as well as his beginning intent, since he never changes, is for the seed of Jesus those that have been made, born, made new creatures in Christ Jesus, those that have accepted the blood of Jesus, for the, the believers, those new creation, one translation says the new species of being, but for them, the ones that are a part of his family, to have dominion on the earth. Here it says the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. I wonder if that's reason, the reason, why the devil spends so much time telling you and me what's wrong with you and me. I wonder if that's the reason that he focuses so much on behavior, places that we miss it, places that we fail to, to hit the mark of what the Bible identifies or you and I would uh, consider righteous behavior or righteous action. Because if these scriptures are true, Here's two witnesses. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Here's two witnesses. First John chapter 5, verse 13, he's talking about those that have eternal life and their prayer life being successful. And here in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 34, where he says, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. His ears are open to their prayers. His ears are open to their prayers. Remember what John said. If we know that we ask, if we ask according to his will, then we know he hears us. And if we know he hears us, since we know he hears us, we know we have the answers to our prayer. I read a um, survey that was done some years ago, five or six years ago probably by now, and it asked a question of... Um, a certain group of people, and it was pretty large sampling. It was several thousand people. They asked the question, of those people, do you believe in prayer? They all identified themselves as Christians. Born-again Christians, I believe, was the term that they used. Uh, there's no other way to be a Christian other than born again. But that was the term that the pollsters used to get the information they were seeking. And so they asked this sampling of people, how many of you believe in prayer? And the answer to that was like 98%. It was just off the charts. Virtually everybody. Every Christian said they believed, they, they believed in prayer. But then they asked another question, a secondary question. They said, how many of you 
have had an answer to your prayer. And it dropped down to like 20%. And I started thinking, why would you believe in something you don't have any results or success in? I think there's a, a big gap between what the Bible says our prayer life ought to be and what most people's prayer life really is. But here's two witnesses, John, 1 John chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3, that says that answered prayer is based on or a result of being made righteous and knowing that you are. Now turn with me over to James chapter 5. Let's see if we can find another witness here. James chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 14. It says, Is any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church, or let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. Notice it's not the oil that does it, it's not the elders that do it, it's the prayer of faith that heals the sick. And the prayer of faith shall heal or save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Verse, 15, verse 16, excuse me, it says, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. Now, God wouldn't tell you to pray for something that was not his will to have, would he? I mean, if the Holy Ghost has inspired James to write this and send this message to the church... Confess your faults one to another and pray you one for another that you may be healed. Then it's got to be God's will for everybody to be healed. Either that or James was not inspired by the Holy Ghost and we need to take the book that bears his name out of the Bible. Or God is tricking us in some way or another. And neither of those two things are true. So when he says confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. It's got to be the will of God for everybody to be healed. Otherwise, he would have said, pray one for another that you may be healed, and the ones it's his will to heal, God will raise up. And the others, if you don't receive your healing, then you know that it wasn't his will. Because that's the way a lot of the church operates. They're praying and then waiting to see what happens as a result of their prayer, and then they ascertain or determine that that was the will of God. Whether they got it or not, that must be the will of God because that's how things turned out. But remember, it's the prayer of faith that saves the sick. You can't pray the prayer of faith if you don't know what God's will is. Now, notice the last part of verse 16. I used to regret that the translators put this as part of verse 16. I would much rather have had the first part that we quoted as verse 16 in the next part, the second half of verse 16, become a separate verse. But I can see why the translators did it. I believe they were inspired of the Holy Ghost to do it the way that they did. Because when he talks about praying one for another that you may be healed, then he talks about who's qualified to pray. He said, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, folks, if everybody in the body of Christ has not been made righteous, then James would be remiss in not adding, by the way, go find a righteous person. And then he identifies the righteousness that he's talking about, that he's referring to. He identifies the righteousness talking about Elijah. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a man subject to like passions. That means common emotions, as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, when he talks about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man and uses Elijah as an example, James knows exactly why he's picking Elijah as the example to, to give. You remember Elijah had the contest between the prophets of Baal and himself. They made this elaborate plan to pray, the prophets of Baal to pray to Baal to bring fire down from heaven and consume a sacrifice. Elijah was standing alone. He said, I'll ask God to do the same thing. And you remember the story. You remember how that they, prophets of Baal jumped around and did all kinds of things, cutting themselves with stones and crazy stuff, and nothing happened. And Elijah rebuilt the altar. He put the sacrifice on the altar. He took these great big things of water, soaked the altar, soaked the sacrifice, soaked the wood of the, the, the thing, and then said a simple prayer, and God caused fire come, to come down from heaven. 
It consumed the sacrifice. It vaporized the water. And it even burned the altar into nothing. You remember what happened next? Jezebel, who had hired, these, hired and taking, was taking care of these 400 prophets of Baal, who would say whatever they wanted, she wanted to say to the people and deceive them and get them to follow whatever she wanted done. She found out about what Elijah had done. And, uh, and by the way, after the prophets of Baal were unsuccessful, Elijah took a sword and killed 450 of them. Slaughtered every one of them. When Jezebel heard that, heard that all of her prophets were dead, she said, so shall I do to Elijah by this time tomorrow. So Elijah goes running for his life. He gets up in the top of a mountain. He crawls up under a juniper tree, and he starts complaining to God. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm the only one left. Everybody's backslid but me. So just take my life now. Brother Hagin used to make a joke. If he really wanted to die, all he had to do was stay where Jezebel could get him. When he said he wanted to die, he didn't want to die any more than you and I when we complained to God about something. Well, now what would cause him to go away and start feeling sorry for himself? Here in James chapter 5, verse 17, it says Elijah was a man of like passions, the same kind of emotions that we experience. So we certainly see that Elijah was subject to feeling sorry for himself. Uh, the Holy Ghost was kind enough not to point out uh, Elijah's sins or his wrongdoings. Which, by the way, there's nothing in the New Testament that shows a man's sin. It's talked about in a general sense. You've got Paul talking about the guy that was living with his father's wife in Corinth and a couple of things like that. But none of the Old Testament failure, failures, people that we have examples of, are referred to or their failures are not referred to under the New Covenant. Elijah, or James knew that Elijah's story was known by everybody. He's part of Jewish history, and this is written to the Jews that are scattered abroad. So he didn't have to go into the details, but he wanted us to understand the same thing that he knew they understood. And that is, Elijah sometimes gave in to his emotions just like we do. He missed it sometimes just like we miss it sometimes. But notice it uses him as an example where he prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years and he prayed again and then the heaven gave rain. Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, even a righteous man that messes up sometimes, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It avails much. Now how can you make a blanket statement like that? How can James, by the Holy Ghost, make a blanket statement like that if God's intent was not in, from the beginning and is not now for a righteous man to have authority and dominion on the earth. Look to Matthew chapter 16 with me. Here's another example that you'll be familiar with, I'm sure. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus answers, or Jesus uh, asks the question of his disciples in verse 13, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, meaning the knowledge of who Jesus is, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And notice verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now whatever you think about binding and loosing. The word bind means to prohibit or forbid. The word loose simply means to allow. Whatever you think about binding and loosening. It's clearly talking about a position of authority. Clearly he's talking about Mankind being given authority. Now notice who he gives that, says he'll give that authority to. At this point, it wasn't theirs because Jesus hadn't finished his sacrificial work on the cross. But notice who he says he's going to give that to. Those who know that Jesus is the Lord. Those that know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, isn't that part of becoming righteous? Don't we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior because we believe that God 
caused him to, laid our sins upon him, caused him to die in our place, and then raised him from the dead. That's what Romans chapter 10 says. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So he's talking about becoming a child of God. He's talking about becoming righteous. And notice he says, to those who will become righteous, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Clearly, he's talking about the initiation starting here from the earth. Now, it's unfortunate in my thinking that it's translated just the way that it is because there's a clearer meaning and a clearer understanding that I think we need to get. And that is this. The blood of Jesus was sufficient for anything and everything we'll ever need. It was sufficient to make us righteous, to change our nature, to pay the price for spiritual death that belonged to, uh, to us, that we, are, we were held in bondage by. It was sufficient to do everything and, and uh, accomplish everything that God intended and everything that was necessary to restore man to his place of right standing before God. This rightness. This righteousness that the Bible refers to. Another meaning of this, along with rightness, means completeness. Another meaning of the word righteous is prosperity, both Old Testament and New Testament, Hebrew and Greek. See, the Bible's talking about making things right the way that it was intended to be by God. It's talking about restoring righteous man to his place of authority in the earth. Well, here, it's talking about whatever Jesus has paid the price for, you have the ability to bind and or loose here on the earth. You're the one that makes the call, not God. You're the one that makes the call. It's according to your will. Now, when we, when we examine the, the position of the, the church, church world at large, concerning the sovereignty of God issue, there are certain scriptures, certain places that the sovereignty of God crowd can't answer. For example, in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 come back and report that the devils, even the devils are subject unto them in the name of Jesus, Jesus said, I, felt, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And then he said, behold, I give unto you authority. Verse 19, behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Well, how do you tap that into, how do you reconcile that with the sovereignty of God belief that God's in control and he's handling everything from his end? What do you do with that scripture? They don't do anything with that scripture. In fact, they ignore that it's there. Because Jesus is clearly saying that man has authority here on the earth. Not God. Man has authority. I think authority was a big part of Jesus' ministry. I don't mean just the exercise of authority. We certainly see that. But the last couple of verses of Matthew chapter 7 tell us that Jesus confounded the people. They were astonished at Jesus' doctrine, his teaching. Well, let me read it rather than just refer to it. Let me read it so I don't mess it up. I don't have it marked. Hold on, I'll get there. Verse 28, Matthew 7, verse 28, he said, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. They weren't astonished at him, they were astonished at his teaching. For, here's why, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The word one is in italics, which in the King James, which means the translators added it. It literally reads this way. Jesus is not teaching that he has authority. He's teaching that man has authority. The original Greek reads like this, for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Jesus taught how to hold authority. I wonder if this has anything to do with the next... Uh, couple of events that take place in Matthew chapter 8 with the centurion comes to him and says, you don't need to come to my house to heal my servant because I understand authority. I'm a man under authority and I tell those under me to do something and they do it. All you have to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. 
I wonder if the, if the centurion develops great faith because he had heard Jesus teaching or heard about Jesus teaching on authority. Because that's exactly what Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29 refer to. Jesus baffled the people with his doctrine on authority. He taught them how to hold, meaning how to exercise, how to use authority. He taught them how. Now we see in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus taught in his own hometown that God had anointed him. Given him power and authority to cast out devils and exercise uh, or to minister healing power to the sick. But this indicates in Matthew chapter 7, it indicates that Jesus spent a lot of time talking about authority on the earth. And rightly so, because that was God's original intent for man. For man to have authority over the works of his hands. So we're the one that decides. Really, when, the, when so many people talk about the sovereignty of God, we need to do a lot of teaching on the sovereignty of man. Even in, and this is not some new concept, because even under the old covenant, God said to his people, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. Folks, if God's pulling the strings, and if it's his will that determines what happens, then there would be no way he could tell us to choose life. He would instead have to tell us if he's being honest, if he's being truthful, if he's bringing us to the light of the truth, he'd have to say, I set before you life and death. Some of you will fall into life and blessing. Others will fall into death and cursing. That's just the way it is. I'm God. But that's not what he says. In a covenant that's not nearly as good as we are, we have. Hebrews 8.6 says that we have a better covenant established upon better promises. In a lesser covenant than we have, he told the children of Israel that they had the authority, they had the right, they had the ability to choose life over death and blessings over curses. Well, if you could do that under the old covenant and we've got a better covenant, why couldn't we do it now under the covenant we have? Thank God we can. Now with John, 7, John 15 verse 7, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he said this, We've already seen that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We've already seen that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. John 15, 7 says, if you abide in me, there's relationship, there's righteousness. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will. And it shall be done unto you. Herein is my father glorified, which means it's got to be God's will. Herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. Now the fruit he's talking about is answered to prayers. Or answered prayer. He's saying answered prayer glorifies God. And Jesus put it in this context. Whatever you will. If you maintain your relationship. Your right standing with God. And if the word abides in you. If you continue on in the word. Then you'll ask what you will. And it shall be done unto you by my father which is in heaven. There's an interesting scripture. I'm going to turn to Isaiah chapter 45. There's an interesting scripture in the Old Testament along these lines. Verse 11, thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my, my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. Now, folks, in case you're thinking that might be a, a mistranslation, if you look up the original language, get an interlinear Bible, in the Hebrew to English, you'll find it means exactly what it says. Concerning the work of my hands, here's God speaking through Isaiah the prophet to the people. Concerning the work of my hands, you tell me what to do. Where's the sovereignty of God in that? How do you reconcile that with the sovereignty of God? See, folks, the simple truth is Psalm 138 verse 2 says, Let the Lord be magnified. Because he's exalted his word above his name. He's exalted his word above his name. Now, I want to keep reading some of these scriptures in Isaiah 45. I want you to see what it says. I have made the earth, verse 12, and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. Now, the reason he's talking about this is he's talking about referring back to verse 11 again. Concerning the work of his hands, we're to command him. 
Now, that doesn't mean with arrogance. That doesn't mean boss God around. It doesn't mean any of those things. You can't do that anyway. You can't boss God around. But you can lay claim on what his word says and loose it into your life. See, the prayer of binding and loosing, I've heard some goofy teaching on that, and you probably have too over the years. It simply means the exercise of your will. Whatever you bind, forbid, or prohibit on the earth, heaven will back you up. If you forbid sickness in your life, heaven will back you up. If you bid, forbid poverty in your life, heaven will back you up on that. But if you allow, whatever you allow, good or bad, heaven will back you up on that too. The Bible says that Satan is the destroyer. As a roaring lion, he walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for somebody that will allow him. He's looking for somebody that will fail to exercise their authority to refuse the work of the devil in their lives and lose him on any and every aspect of their life. It's the exercise of a person's will. Binding and loosing is all about the exercise of your will. And Jesus said that he would give us the ability, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the ability to make those decisions. Here he's talking about concerning the work of his hands. We should tell God what we need him to do and how to help. And then he starts talking about his greatness. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up, talking about man, in righteousness. Notice he's talking about the exercise of our will in connection with righteousness. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all of his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives. Not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's skip down a little bit. And um, verse 18, for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. That phrase he created it not in vain is the same phrase that's used over in Genesis 1 verse 2 where it says, and the earth was without form and void. Created it in vain means without form and void. He did not create it without form and void. He did not make it to be that way. Something outside of God's control at that point in time turned it into the mess that it was when God recreated the earth, the six days of creation story, and put man in the middle of it. Verse 19, I have not spoken in secret. In a dark place of the earth, I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I want you to notice that he calls his word righteousness. So when the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added to you. If we use this for the definition of his righteousness, he's talking about pursuing the word. Well, that's what Jesus told us to do, isn't it? If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done of, of you or for you by my Father in heaven. It all comes down to our right standing with God. It always co all comes down and always will come down to God putting things right for us once again. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Look with me to John 16. He's talking about going away from his disciples. Verse 23, and he says, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father, there's relationship. You can only be God's only Father to those who have been made righteous. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto, up till now, have you asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full that your joy may be full. Notice it doesn't say, ask so that the will of God is done. Notice it doesn't say, ask so that God can perform his will in your life and make himself happy. That your joy, that has something to do with you and your decisions. See, the things that bring you joy might not be the things that bring me joy. I might pray for a different thing than you pray for based on what we have need of in our lives or any number of things. There could be any number of variables between you and me or anybody else for that matter. But he said, ask him that you may receive that your joy may be full. 
that your joy may be full. Sounds like he's talking to us about exercising our will again, isn't he? I don't think we understand righteousness like we ought to. I don't think that we've come to the place yet where we realize what righteousness does. I don't think we've come to the place where we understand that the righteousness of God is the paramount issue for us. Look with me again to Matthew. To, um, let me read from Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54, verse 17, it says, No weapon that is formed against thee. Well, let me back up a little bit. Verse 14 first, it says, In righteousness shall you be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come nigh thee, or near thee. Now verse 17, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Notice he says it's righteousness that gives us a firm footing. Notice he said that righteousness is what plants us, makes us strong, makes us steady. That's what established means, being established means. It means being on a firm foundation, stable, so that you can't fall over or be taken under. Now here where he says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, because our righteousness is of him. In that, I can read a little bit of the authority of man, the authority given unto man, certainly. But it even seems to go a step further. It seems that God is saying in Old Testament terms what Paul said in the New Testament, that we're more than conquerors. He's talking about victory. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. He's talking about victory as a result of righteousness. Folks, the simple truth is this. There should not be one area of life that we lose in. Not one. Now, some people might say, well, that's not fair. That would give us an unfair advantage over the world. God never promised to be fair. God promised to be good and merciful. He's good to all. He makes the sun shine on the wicked and the just. He gives rain both to the wicked and the just. God's good to anybody and everybody. But the idea that we have an unfair advantage is exactly what God wants us to have. That's exactly the way he wants it to be. Because he intended in the beginning and intends now and will forever intend that righteous man have dominion on the earth. Oh, if only we could feel righteous. You know, the Bible never says that you will ever feel righteous. Because righteousness, righteousness is not a feeling. Righteousness is a condition. It's a position. It's a place that we've been translated into. It's a condition or a, a nature that has been given unto us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's a condition that makes God open his ears to every prayer we pray. God's not picking winners and losers. Never has, never will. He makes the same goodness, the same blessing, the same victory available to everybody. But because man was created to have authority on the earth, it comes down to what we choose. He's already chosen it for all of us. He's already chosen all of us to be in Christ. The Bible says it's the will of God that none should perish. But God wills for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the will of God already. Well, if that's the will of God and God is sovereign like some people teach, then why didn't everybody get saved? It's his will. The answer is because they reject it. In other words, they're thwarting the will of God in their own lives by choosing to believe something other than Jesus. I just think there's a lot more there. 
Let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the work of our hands. I just think there's more there. I think there's more to being made righteous than we accept. Seems to me that there's two camps when it comes to the subject of righteousness. One is, since I don't feel worthy, I must be unworthy and I must be unrighteous. And the other side, the ditch on the other side is, well, yeah, the Bible says we've been made righteous. Ho-hum. But righteousness is something we're supposed to base our Christian lives on. Righteousness is something that we're supposed to have a, a clear enough understanding of, I believe, a clear enough understanding of to know that our condition of being made right before God gives us the opportunity to put in practice and make work in our lives everything that Jesus died for. I just think there's more there. It's not because we do works of righteousness that we have this position given to us by God. It's because we've been made righteous by him. Our righteousness is of him. Let me make a suggestion to you. Next time the devil starts trying to tell you what's wrong with you and why you can't make it and what you've done wrong and how ugly you've acted or whatever, remind him that your righteousness is of God. Reminding that your righteousness came directly from God. You have exactly the same righteousness that Jesus himself has. Exactly the same. See, when you accept the fact that Jesus, in paying the price for you, became sin. That doesn't mean that God laid sins on him. It means he became, his nature changed from life, the life of God, to spiritual death. He was separated from the Father in the lowest part of the, of the earth, maybe even experiencing, well, certainly experiencing every form of judgment that there was upon sin. When you understand that Jesus was in the place, just like he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, he came to the place where it was beyond his ability to do anything about it anymore. Up to that point in time, up until death passed upon him, until he became sin, he could have taken himself down from the cross. He could have uh, aborted the, the whole plan. He could have said, I'm not going to do it. But at the point where he says, into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit, that's the point where he became death. He became unrighteousness. His nature was changed. He's not just setting his righteousness aside for a few days until he finishes the work. He lost it just like Adam lost it. He surrendered himself to the will of God. Well, okay, now the Bible tells us that Jesus paid the price. And there came a moment in time after those three days of him suffering and paying the price for all of mankind that God spoke out of heaven and said, that's it, the price is paid. Then what? Then what could have happened? Jesus has already been made spiritual death. Jesus' nature has already become estranged or separated from God. What happened then? The Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. He can't be talking about physical birth. When it says Jesus became the firstborn of many brethren, it's got to be talking about spiritual birth. It's got to be talking about Jesus being born again. When you understand the plan of God from the beginning, it begins to dawn on us that Jesus was born again just like we were born again. And when the Bible says we're joint heirs with Christ, it means we have the same quality of life, the same righteousness that Jesus himself has. Folks, Jesus laid aside his righteousness for our sakes. So when he was born again, when he was raised from the dead, literal spiritual death rather, when he was raised from spiritual death, it means God imparted his righteousness unto him just like he did for us when we made Jesus the Lord of our lives. You've got the same new birth experience that Jesus has. You've got the same quality of life 
You've got the same righteousness that Jesus himself has. I wonder if Jesus ever sits at the right hand of God the Father and says, you know, Father, I just don't feel right today. I just don't feel worthy. I remember when I was in the pit of hell and paying the price for all of mankind and all of man's sins. And it just, I don't know, it just makes me feel dirty. That's absurd, isn't it? Jesus' righteousness is a perfect righteousness because it was imparted to him of the Father, just like yours was. And that right standing, that position that we gain by being made righteous by the blood of Jesus is the position that makes us worthy to exercise all of the authority that man was intended to have, righteous man was intended to have here on the earth, and to perform the same works that Jesus did. That's supposed to be what it's all about, folks. Our righteousness is of him. Yeah, but I've messed up. Well, that wasn't you. That was the flesh. You are still made righteous. Whether we ever live up to it or not, we have the same righteousness that Jesus has. When we come to understand that, the question then becomes, why don't we live up to it? Let's make that our pursuit, to live up to what we've been made. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. And every tongue that rises in judgment, we shall condemn. I believe that's the devil's tongue more than anything else. And this is the heritage of the saints. Their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Your righteousness is of God. Your righteousness is and ever will be of God. And because you're righteous, remember the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to your prayers. That means every prayer you pray, God listens to and watches over to bring it to pass. Now because we love him, because we see the value of his word, we make the word of God and the righteousness of God that he identifies as his word, that he speaks. We make that our pursuit as well. We learn and we grow in the knowledge of the word and the knowledge of the truth so that every question or every situation begins with the question coming from us, what does the word say about this? And then as we exercise our will to have what the word says, we've bound the devil's authority, we've bound his operation, and we've loosed the blessings and the victory of God into our lives. And it's all because God made us righteous. God didn't leave us down here to suffer in the earth under the bondage of the enemy. He left us here to showcase his victory through righteousness over everything the devil has. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the authority you've given us in the earth. Our righteousness is of you. You said so. We know it must be true because you cannot lie. So we thank you, Father, for authority. We thank you for the ability to bind the work of the devil, prohibit it and forbid it. We thank you for the authority to loose the blessings of God into our lives. We thank you, Father, for all that Jesus did, for paying the ultimate price, and he did a complete work. He paid for everything that we will ever have need of, not, not just in this life, on this earth, but throughout all eternity. Thank you, Father, that you hear every prayer that we pray, and every prayer we pray, even as you told us to do, to put you in remembrance, every prayer based on the Word of God, every prayer based on our knowledge of what you've done for us and provided for us. Every one of those prayers comes to pass in Jesus' name. We have your guarantee on it, Father. We have your word. So we thank you. We call ourselves the healed of God. We call ourselves abundantly provided for. We thank you, Father, 
that we have peace with you and right standing because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus our Lord. We bless you, Father. We thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. And everybody that agrees said amen. Amen. There's a whole lot more to see there, I believe. It's a good thing to make our pursuit. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to us. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you Sunday morning.